Hello and welcome to Open Room Talks, a podcast which draws on open room events experiencing connecting people to bring you quality discussions between industry experts, innovative suppliers, and high-powered end-users on pertinent issues in a variety of sectors. I am Kiana Sapp, and joining me today on the show, I have Brian Madison, Michael O'Loughlin, and Paul O'Hare. Brian joined the Petrol Retailers Association as chairman in 2009, after more than 20 years as managing director of George Hammond PLC. He drives the association's wide-ranging policies through his representation of thousands of independent retailers to government and other key industry bodies. He regularly appears on TV with the BBC, Sky and ITN, all making good use of his wide-ranging industry knowledge, as does both national and regional BBC radio channels. Michael is a forecourt veteran of almost 25 years. He currently holds non-executive director roles at Eurotank Service Group and Irish healthy food chain Freshly Chopped UK, as well as being chief operating officer of Simply Fresh and its partnership with Sainsbury's Simply Local. Michael was Motor Fuel Group's Managing Director of Acquisitions and Business Development for two years until mid-2019, but the majority of his career was spent at Petrogas Group, with the final eight years as Managing Director of Apple Green UK. Paul recently joined the Eurotank Service Group as a Business Development Manager. Prior to this, Paul spent more than a decade at ExxonMobil, completing a variety of assignments across fuel marketing, finance, and crude oil trading. Paul has gained a wealth of forecourt retail experience, including regional manager for the Esso Tesco Alliance. And his first role with the oil giant back in 2010 was as an area manager for its company-owned retail stores. So today's show is a little bit of a warm-up ahead of the big debate 2030, taking place at Refuel UK on the 6th to 7th of September at the Devere Beaumont Estate in Old Windsor. The aim of that discussion and the aim of this episode is to present some potential strategies that fuel retailers should be considering in preparation for the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles in 2030. So gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really looking forward to hearing some of those strategies. Uh, So that's enough of my rambling. The floor is all yours. Thank you very much. That was a great introduction. Um, And we look forward to the event in September. Um, I, I always think, you know, the three people on the call today, Paul and, and Brian, who I've known for many years, and um, we're all petrol heads and uh, we're all pro the industry that we've made a great uh, living out of and has been looked after us very well. And, and then at the same time, I think of the government's latest legislation where, where they've announced a reduction in the funding towards consumers purchasing electric cars. And as a result, immediately the consumer and the motors in the UK stop buying electric cars and, and in recent months the rate of purchase has been much lower than um, than anything before uh, has come in previous months. Um, I suppose Brian, I, 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 as I say, we're both petrol heads and you know 2030 is looming. The, the Boris and, and the British government have made it clear to the consumer and to the motor industry that this is going. But are, are we really going to be ready for 2030 with, with this sort of antics on reducing incentives for motors? I suspect not. Uh, one thing that we have found as the Retail Motor Industry Federation representing uh, motor auctions, car dealerships, second-hand car sales, as well as petrol retailing cars, one thing we found during this pandemic as the uh, restrictions have started lifting and people are going back to work they don't want to go on buses, tubes, and railway. So 
there's a big demand for second-hand cars from people who previously haven't had one, but actually have got to get to work somehow. So we see that the uh, market for existing internal combustion engine vehicles, petrol and diesel, is likely to accelerate beyond the 32 million that we have at present into something even wider, which presents the government with an even bigger problem as to how to get everybody sitting on a battery and going to work uh, in an electric vehicle. A very difficult task indeed. They've got a long way to go. And with the, with the UK government also estimating that car ownership will increase by 10% by 2050, that 32 million number is just going to in, increase. Paul, you've just come from ExxonMobil. And um, what's, what, with your ExxonMobil hat on, do you think that the, uh, the UK uh, will be ready for 2030? Well, that's a really good question, and there's sort of two elements to sort of any change in, of that nature. I think, first of all, it's the legislation, and then secondly, it's the infrastructure and affordability. So right now, the government has, as you say, they've put a set of legislation in place to try and drive us towards electrical vehicles, but they haven't actually in that legislation completely answered how they will get there. And if you look at the current sort of electrical vehicles that are out there, they're very carbon intensive. So although it it seems good to reduce the emissions at the point of vehicle use, but you also have to look at the entire carbon life cycle of the vehicle. And right now, a lot of these vehicles are very intensive to produce the batteries. Disposal of the batteries is uh, not exactly the best for the environment. And then actually providing the electricity is still predominantly produced by fossil fuels. So I think the, the government needs to really step up, I think, and work with the energy industry as a whole to how we get the entire life cycle of the vehicle in the right direction from a carbon point of view. Very interesting. That's true. Um, I suppose the purpose of the debate was always to discuss, obviously, doomsday scenario. And I suppose that was the the reason behind the debate in the first place. And I suppose we should consider if there is, if we are going to be attacked with electric vehicles and the the average forecourt in the UK will derivate half its, its, its income from fuel. Um, so what happens if we lose that half of our income and what if it's sl- slowly taken away? Brian, you're a big fan of car wash and uh, the car wash opportunity. Yes, I think one of the things, again, that we have experienced during the pandemic was that for the first time, the regulators, the enforcers have taken the step of closing down hand car washes. All of those rather nefarious operations operating at the bottom of your street on disused petrol stations. And the police estimated at one stage we might have up to 20,000 of them. And as um, the recent director for the Office for Labour Market Enforcement said, they are all non-compliant with tax, with environmental health, with labour abuse. And so when those closed down, and as the Car Wash Association, we were able to encourage governments uh, around 
the uh, four home unions to keep automated car washes open. With automated car washes, jet washes, rollovers, conveyors, started to see a good rise in volume of usage. And so uh, as recently as a month ago, Elias Munchi, who's the um, franchise global director for Euro Garages, said, we've seen this and we've noted that hand car washes are not as prevalent as they were. And so we are going to be reinvesting in automated car watches as we see this is a great opportunity to make our sites uh, more attractive even uh, for the motorist going into the 2030s, 2040s. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely correct. If you have a look at car watching in uh, Germany and in the States, there are absolute palaces of car wash conveyor belts, uh, detailers cleaning out your car. I mean, it is a mega business. And this is not this is something that in the UK we can strive to copy as clearly uh, the days of Saturday with a bucket and a leather and a bit of turtle wax watching your own car. I think that's out of the window forever. <laughs> and it's also, I think Brexit probably is doing us a favour because the closed border situation, and um, like you have to, it's an observation, but uh, most of the hand car wash, and I think you told me before, Brian, there was 20,000 hand car washes in the UK or something in that region, is that these are, are populated by people who possibly come in illegally and set up this cash business without avoiding VAT and PAYE and not contributing. So I suppose... We want to win this, you, certainly you in the PRA and the Car Wash Association, you want to win this back for the independent retailers and reclaim that business for them so people follow the Euro Garage example and invest in car washes. Because 31 million cars, 35 million cars, whatever the number was be, they all got to be washed, don't they? You know? Absolutely right. And only this week, the government and industry, including the Car Wash Association, have rolled out the brand new responsible car wash scheme. And this is being taken to four trial areas in the home counties with um, the backing of the police and local authorities to visit all of these non-compliant hand car washes, show them the error of their ways, and to give them uh, a little time, it is Mm. to be fair, a little time, to improve their compliance, and if they don't, uh, then they will be closed down. And this is all part of what the director for the Office for Labour Market Enforcement said, uh, we need to have a national licensing scheme. And so one can see that the 20,000, even if it was 10,000, actually shrinking quite dramatically. And so there will be a huge demand for uh, automated car washing facilities going forward. And I, I, I frankly see this as a terrific opportunity. I agree. I agree, yeah. E- even now, we've got some of our members with uh, latest style jet wash bays where you can go and clean your car yourself. Um, they they are turning over 200000 a year with a serious 
gross yeah. profit margin. And, and so that is a really good investment in here and now, as opposed to electric vehicle charging, mm. which might be next year, if ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose with the, with the future in mind, we've, we've definitely established that expanding valeting and car washing on, on your forecourt to replace the potential lost income from fuel margin is definitely, uh, definitely a player. And I'm very optimistic about fuel margins stabilizing and, and it not being a battleground product as we move into the future. Paul, when with your um, experience and background, how do you view the future use of four courts for retailers? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I think really good points that were made by Brian there. And being part of the millennial generation myself, you're very aware that we have a growing awareness as a society of the impact of our purchases. Therefore, I think the the retailers out there and the, the local authorities that they work within really have an opportunity here to work together to eliminate businesses that don't operate within the same fair framework that they do. And I think that some communication can be done as well to to highlight the ethical choice to the consumers out there. And I think it's a ever-growing movement and I think it's a real opportunity. But in terms of the you know, the future of, you know, these four courts, the the reality is that EV charging is coming. But I think if I go back to like my X and Mobile days, we used to talk about the dual challenge. So that's sort of providing the sort of traditional fossil fuel based services while catering for the dilution of the energy mix out there as well so i think more and more the the back court and sort of ancillary services are going to become even more important and i literally just read in the news the other day about pretamongi starting an agreement with tesco so the food and the go sector is really starting to penetrate into sort of every aspect of our society i think that it's also becoming part of the industry where people expect higher quality as well. And you always talk about the proliferation of Euro garages. I find it incredible to see that uh, you can buy pizza, you can buy donuts, you can buy Subway Savage, you can have cost on the go. So I really think that when you go through a period of change, those who tend to innovate and invest are the ones that will survive. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a huge market still out there today. We only have to look at the activity in the marketplace, some of the top 50 indies where um, there seems to be a massive appetite for any forecourt that comes on the market. And I think Christie's were quoting, I think it was a last year number, um, values in the region of, of 1.6 million was an average forecourt value for the UK, which was quite quite astounding. And, and they maintained that that appetite will continue into the year ahead, which which is something we can discuss in more detail in September. But one other area, Brian, that I know you have you're passionate about is the alternative fuel. Do you, is this a real thing, or is is it something that retailers can can hang their hat on and hopefully it'll arrive, or is or or, or is it just a, a, a fiction of the imagination? Is this ever going to happen? Well, the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders only a couple of weeks ago went to the government formally to say that the date of 2030 for the banning of uh, new ice vehicles was completely uh, unrealistic. 
And of course, uh, on the continent, Paris, France, for instance, they're talking about 2040. So one feels that this, this government, whilst it's very well intentioned in terms of uh, clean air and uh, climate change, there has to be a proper balance between what is achievable and what is pure fantasy. And one feels that at the moment, this 2030 date is pure fantasy because they aren't really giving uh, sufficient weight to looking at uh, low-carbon uh, new fuels, uh, and even they're not putting proper weight on hydrogen. So I think the forecourt retailer has got to be quite careful that they don't borrow too much money, put their eggs in the wrong technology basket at this stage. This is something I was talking to one of the major banks about this week. I had a, a Zoom call with uh, four directors, and they were saying, we are a little bit concerned about our lending into this sector now because of the specter of electric vehicles, and not all of them will either be able to or want to charge, recharge at a forecourt. So how do we look at this going forward? And I said, well, just keep supporting the industry uh, as far as you can see, because we are an extremely flexible sector. And if you look what we've done just over the last 10 years with the forecourt shop, it's changed out of all recognition. In the old-style CTN, where you could get a packet of fags, um, a bit of oil, and, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the news of the world, and now you've got butchers, you've got fresh fruit, you've got chill takeaway. So we're very flexible. And just as soon as the alternative energy uh, is shown to be uh, in the ascendance for what it is, whether it's electric, hydrogen, or some sort of alternative fuels, we will be there as a sector investing and providing a service to our consumers. I completely agree with you, Brian. Everything you said there, absolutely agree with you. And I'm just touching on the shops, obviously, you know, um, and I'm smiling when I'm saying this, is that not all groups are as good as the George Hammond group. And I mean that I've visited the stores many times, or Apple Green for that instance, or Eurogar. Just a lot of the groups have a long way to go in relation to their shop offer. And I suppose if a consumer is purchasing fuel once or twice a week, um, the, having the best shop is really important because sh sh consumers now shop three and four times a day. And I always feel that the petrol station shop just has enough for the motorists and, and what they need now. I, I don't think that's the case for everybody, but I think that's the case for a lot, of, a lot of operators. And I think that they really need to make their stores become a bigger location for a bigger shop and, and, and choose a good partner. Um, to do that but I suppose and that's a bit of investment really but I suppose Paul you know what, what with your Eurotank uh, hat on um, and obviously you guys do huge selection of works uh, on those forecourts and I, I'm privy to being on the board of Eurotank what what investment can, can Eurotank offer the independent retailer to prepare themselves and ready themselves for the road ahead yeah the, as you mentioned the real advantage of working with Eurotank uh, is we are a group of services and can offer the retailers a whole range of solutions that come from small cost effective to much more 
uh, significant investments on either single site or perhaps an entire portfolio of sites. So particularly in the, the capital constrained environment we were in, uh, when I used to work for ESO, we were on a massive capital spend to turn things from single skin tanks to double skin tanks. Uh, we put out uh, rebranding and all these kind of things. Uh, however, Eurotank can actually, you don't need to just buy new. Eurotank has the capability to reline tanks. We have the ability to clean tanks, especially with the, the summer change over to E10. E10, by its very nature, can be more corrosive to your tanks. It's more prone to bacterial growth and things like that. So we also offer things like fuel polishing, tank cleans, uh, repair of your existing tanks. We can also do inspections. Uh, but also for those who are maybe thinking, I don't want to necessarily buy brand new pumps, that's something that we can help with. We can help you pick the right pumps, install them for you and all the works that go with that. But we also have a, a really good Europump maintenance division which can help you look after your existing forecourt. All great services. Um, just to support your view, Brian, um, like we have 8,500 forecourts in the UK. We are in absolute prime location. Those 32 million cars are going by us every day. No matter what they're doing, they're going to be going by us, electric or whatever. So we have wonderful locations. And um, I have personal experience of all the drive-through companies, and there's tons of those. There's the coffee companies, there's the chicken companies, the burger brands, all fighting for locations. And they'd snap our hand off for our locations. And I'm sure in the future, some of them may, may some of our retailers may take that opportunity. But but in the PRA, you must be getting lots of calls from retailers looking for some guidance or support in relation to EV. And and I know BP have taught BP have a clear strategy. Shell have a clear strategy. They're investing millions as, as multiples. The big groups, um, the big the big top five indies are all investing lots of money in trying to figure out where this EV and battery is going. What would you be saying to your members or what are your colleagues saying to your members? Are you building a strategy? At the present time, I think they have got to keep a weather eye on the technology and the rate of change. Uh, already, some of the uh, charging points that have been put in are frankly of little use because they don't give enough capacity of charge in a rapid enough time to really be an attraction to the motorist. So you've, you've got to keep absolutely to the forefront. And, and if you have limited finance available to you, either from your own uh, sources or from bank uh, lending, you need to be sure that that's going to be used wide, wisely. And, and there's no point in rushing in too early. Let the market develop. See what you think is going to be uh, the way forward before you invest. And I think some of our members, like Ronson at Romtech, um, who is a great student of the market uh, and has done terrific things with his group, he is being very wise at present time and not splurging a lot of investment uh, on the very first things that come along. So I think a little bit of wait and see 
it wouldn't do you any harm at all. I agree. I agree. We we all look at the the, the beautiful grid serve um, electric service station near Stansted, and it's a wonderful, wonderful development. And and you, you hats off to the guys. But but I've gone by on four occasions now, and there's never been a car in the forecourt. And that's just going too early. I suppose you're right. Gerald is correct. You know, it needs to be planned. It needs to to move with the motorists and move with their activity and, and, and going too early. So I suppose we're winding up our time now. Um, we're all looking forward to September where we get to discuss this with a, with a good panel of, uh, of retailers and a, and a great room of retailers and suppliers. Um, so I suppose uh, the last word to both of you, um, do you think um, that, the, uh, that the hybrid car will form a part of the future? And if it will form a part of the future, maybe that will alleviate all our concerns because people people like their cars. I certainly am switching to, a, to an electric car anytime soon, um, probably have range anxiety. So do, do you think that that's a, that's a rescue for the, for the industry, Paul? Well, I'll answer you. Honestly, I have a hybrid and I have a, a diesel car. And for me, the diesel car wins every time. But uh, <laughs> I think that, Self-charging hybrids are potentially an option for the future. I think we have a long way to go yet before pure electric cars really kind of take hold. <laughs> and Brian, you always speak very affectionately about your car. Yes, I've got a 15-year-old Volvo, which is a, a 2.5 uh, diesel, <laughs> and it's about 130,000 miles. Um People call them the Lebanese taxis, and actually, <laughs> it's it's only just getting run in. So I don't see any reason to to change. And actually, talking to some of some of my friends, uh, they're holding back their purchase because they're going to buy petrol and diesel in twenty twenty nine, and that'll keep them going for another ten or fifteen years. Uh, and so, there's, a good history, there's a good history to prove that's true, Brian, isn't there? There is, absolutely. Yes, yes. So so I think that the forecourt uh, retailers, indeed uh, the energy companies who uh, supply some of their refineries, uh, should at least feel warm and comfortable that we've got at least another 25 years of uh, fossil fuel usage ahead of us. Yes, I agree. Listen, guys, thank you so much for joining me today on this. It's been good fun. It's been great chatting to you two. Have a wonderful summer, and I look forward to continuing this conversation in September. Very good. Thank you very much, Michael, and thanks, Paul. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yes, gents. Thank you so much for that discussion. Really plenty in there for forward-thinking fuel retailers to consider. If you're listening to this and are interested in learning more about Refuel UK 2021, please feel free to drop us an email at hello at openroomevents.com and we'll be happy to talk uh, you through how to get involved. And finally, I should extend a huge thank you to Eurotank for their continued support of the event. So Brian, Michael, Paul, thank you once again for coming on the show. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to continuing the conversation in September down in Windsor. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to Open Room Talks. We hope that you've enjoyed the episode. For inquiries, please feel free to get in touch via email on hello at openroomevents.com. For details on future episodes, please follow us on LinkedIn or visit openroomevents.com. Until next time.